The last time that I crossed the Canada-United States border, I let a machine take my picture. If you crossed at a busy airport, you probably did too. It was easy. It probably saved me 10 minutes or so or more. And I mean, I assume that I'm on camera the entire time I'm in an airport anyway. So what do I have to lose? Well, my face, for one. I have no idea where that picture goes once it's been taken. What other agencies see it? Who do they pass it along to? Or if it will ever come back to haunt me? And it turns out that those kiosks are one of the least creepy kinds of technology being used at border crossings and in other places with a high level of surveillance. Everything from the irises of our eyes to the unique ways that we walk can be recorded and used to identify us and pick us out of a crowd. And once these tools debut, usually in a pilot program, they can roll out to wider use with alarming speed. And once they're in use, if you want to cross the border, there's not a lot you can do about it. So what rights do you have? What regulations govern the use of this kind of technology? What can agencies like the Border Patrol do with your information? Can you opt out? Would you opt out? I will just ask this last question because, honestly, some of you might say yes. If you could leave your passport and your identification behind and never worry about losing them or forgetting them, would you let your biometric data become your ID? Would you let your face be your passport? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Hillary Beaumont is a freelance investigative reporter based in Toronto. Hello, Hillary. Hey, Jordan. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm a little uh, creeped out about the next time I travel, thanks to this piece. <laughs> oh, no problem. Just happy to make you aware. Well, listen, let's start uh, with the actual process. You had your irises scanned as a part of reporting this. What is that like? Tell me about it. Yeah, um... I thought it was it would be really interesting to go into a jail in Texas as part of this story because there was a sheriff there, um, this guy named Omar Lucio, who had been like pretty open about the fact that he was using this iris scanner in his jail. Um, his jail is very close to the Texas-Mexico border, and this iris scanner was helping um basically deport people at the U.S. border. Um, and I wanted to kind of go inside this jail and see what this was like. I went in, saw how they were using it in the jail. They were scanning inmates in and not telling them what this technology was. Um, I volunteered to use it as well. It's essentially like a little camera. You get your eyes scanned. Um, it checks your eyes against a database and tells you who the person is and if they have a criminal history. And I'm assuming yours came up negative. They came up negative, yes. <laughs> Do you know what happened uh, to the scan after you were done? Well, for my eyes, they deleted it. Um, but for inmates in the jail, they keep them indefinitely. They basically end up in a government database that is shared with law enforcement agencies across the U.S., like the FBI um, and also Immigration and Customs Enforcement. 
And essentially, they uh, they allow agencies to deport people more quickly or identify people who are um, not using their real names. And that's essentially how it works. Is there anything, and we're going to get beyond um, this one Texas jail and this one technology uh, in just a second, but is there anything preventing that jail or any other place um, that does this from giving those to anyone else? Like, I understand it being used in a law enforcement context, though we can certainly debate that. But I mean, how, how private is it once your eyes are out there? Yeah, I mean, for a lot of these technologies, whether it's in a jail context or when you're crossing an international border, what I think people should know is that you're you're in a space of reduced privacy expectation. So it's really hard to um, say no to these technologies. And then once your irises or your face or any biometric identification is scanned, it can be, you know, indefinitely stored in a database and shared with all of these different agencies, you know, whether or not you're a criminal. Can you explain a little bit about uh, what a place with a reduced expectation of privacy is and and what does that let the government do? Yeah. um, So spaces of reduced privacy expectation include borders, prisons, detention facilities, and essentially these are areas where legally you cannot retain your rights to privacy um, as well as you would in other contexts. So, you know, um, one example is uh, back in 2016, I believe, I was uh, flying from Toronto Pearson to North Dakota and to, to report on the Standing Rock protests. And I was flagged for secondary screening. And uh, they actually confiscated my phone um, only for about 10 minutes. Um, but it made me nervous as hell. Um, you know, I had a pass password on my phone, of course, but it just made me like feel so violated that they could take my phone like that. Um, even just for a few minutes, I was wondering, like things were rushing through my head of like, what are they going to do with my phone? How long am I going to be kept here? Like what's going on? And this is just an example of what you can and can't do at borders. Like you, you have a really hard time retaining your privacy, your data, your phone in these spaces, because what are you supposed to do under those circumstances? So that brings us to why this matters to Canadians, I guess, because there's all sorts of this technology being used at border crossings, apparently. Yeah. You know, the iris is just one example of how quickly tech companies can offer new tech to local, state, and federal law enforcement agencies, and then how quickly those technologies can expand along borders. For example, Omar Lucio, the sheriff in Brownsville, Texas, he was the first border sheriff to use this. And then the company um, had offered the tech to him for free because they saw a need to identify people migrating across the southern border. And then another 30 border sheriffs had picked up the tech and then you know, by 2019, the company signed a deal with 3,000 different sheriffs across the U.S. And so I wanted to show like an example of how quickly this tech can expand, um, not only along the southern U.S. border, but also 
potentially along our border as well. Because I think uh, I was really unaware of this, but since the September 11th attacks, the U.S. has really seen the Canadian border as a more vulnerable place to terrorist infiltration. So since then, like over the past decades, Border Patrol has really increased the intelligence sharing and use of tech along our border. So that's kind of why we're seeing the expansion of these technologies like along both U.S. borders. We also know that Biden has said he will increase DHS funding for smart border tech. Um, So there's no reason to think that that couldn't also affect Canada. So, I mean, I've traveled back and forth across that border. Well, not for a long time now, as we talk a year into the pandemic, but but I have done so many times. Um, There's no iris scanning, but what other kind of tech uh, exists at various Canadian-U.S. border crossings and what does the public know about it? Because again, I- I've never really noticed anything. Maybe I'm just not paying attention. I don't think it's that you're not paying attention because I've traveled across the border many times as well. Um, but there aren't really signs anywhere telling you what's in use. And there's no disclosure of these technologies or a way to actively opt out. So um, one thing you should know if you've traveled a lot to the U.S. is that since 2004, Um, The U.S. has been gathering biometric records of foreign nationals, including Canadians. And so as of May 2020, there have been over 7 million passengers that have been biometrically verified. What does that mean? What what qualifies as biometric? Yeah, any biometric is basically um, something that is an immutable characteristic like your face or your eyes or uh, your voice or the way that you walk even. Um, And these things are, you know, individual characteristics that can be um, picked up by an algorithm and basically like facial recognition, for example, would create a template of your face and store it. So (laughs) that's how that works. And do we know anything about um, if there's a give and take, I guess, between the Canadians and the Americans on on agreeing to use this technology at at the border? Or is this, you know, one of those things, and I know there's lots of them, where America kind of says, hey, we're doing this. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's um, there are data sharing agreements between Canada and the U.S. Um, again, since uh, the terror attacks of 9-11, um, those agreements basically um, commit to intelligence sharing about everything from um, biometrics to, uh, you know, visa and Im- immigration applications, this kind of stuff. So there is a lot of data sharing um, between the two the two countries. Can you give me a sense of how widespread this stuff is, both in terms of you know where it is, but also of all the different kinds of tech that's being used? You know, the the only thing that I'm familiar with is scanning your passport and having it take a picture of your face, but I don't know what it's doing with that picture. And there are all kinds of these things out there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So the kiosks used at the border, absolutely, like that is facial verification technology. 
Um, there's also Canada Border Services Agency has tested um, something called a deception detector called Avatar. Um, they don't actually have plans to use it, but they ran a simulation and it basically scans your face for signs of lying and uses biometrics like whether you like blinked too quickly to decide whether you were lying. Oh, um, and the system it, it found out was only better than a random guess. Um, so they didn't actually deploy this, but they were experimenting with it. Canada also uses AI to screen visa applications. So a human will make the final decision on that, but it will it will kind of um, send an application to a, a different screening process if it's determined to be more complex. And people are concerned that false negatives could cast suspicion on asylum claims. And the UK used a similar system to analyze visa applications, and that ended up in a human rights complaint. And then also another thing to be aware of is that this year, Canada and the Netherlands were planning to pilot a project in which your face becomes your passport. So (laughs) that one was really interesting to me, where you basically, um, you put, it's like an opt-in system, and you can put um, your passport, your ID, various things in a virtual wallet, basically inside an app. And then facial recognition will quickly identify you with all of the information you shared in your virtual wallet. You can also build things in like trust verification with um, banks, hotels, medical providers. But the question is, if like these pilot projects become more widespread, how easy is it to opt out of that? And then like there are problems with the, the kiosks that you have interacted with as well. Like what? I mean, there have been real concerns about, um, you know, racism and bias within these facial recognition systems. For example, for just those kiosks that you've interacted with and I've interacted with, mm-hmm. um, the CBC had obtained internal CBSA emails saying that those kiosks had flagged people from Iran and Jamaica at higher rates for secondary screening. Um, And we know that facial recognition is biased because there have been um, analysis done by MIT and Stanford University that found an error rate of up to 34.7% for women with dark skin compared to only 0.8% with men with light skin. Beyond identifying you at the border and helping or hindering your crossing, um, when this data is shared... What else can be done with it? Yeah, that's a big concern. I mean, it can, it is shared with commercial airlines um, when when you're crossing a border. Um, so that data essentially is, can be retained by commercial airlines and we don't know how long that's retained for, what purposes it's used for. And then also um, facial recognition, potentially iris recognition, um, can be integrated into networks of surveillance cameras, CCTV cameras. So that data can actually be used to identify people in other contexts, um, you know, out of the border context. That's very scary. (laughs) Yeah. Um, There's also this bigger problem as well with how that data is stored and how securely it's stored. So, for example, in 2019, the Department of Homeland Security had admitted that 
because it didn't properly safeguard this data that hackers had stolen the facial recognition images of 200,000 people and those ended up on the dark web. If that's the case, then maybe you can tell me a little bit about what kind of regulations are in place. Uh, I know the tech can move exceedingly fast and are governments keeping up with it and, and what's protecting us? As far as I know, there are very few regulations when it comes to border privacy in particular. Um, I know that like when we're talking about um, facial recognition and like, for example, Clearview AI in Canada, we've been talking about how Clearview has broken privacy rules in Canada. Clearview scraped more than 3 billion images from social media and other public web pages building facial recognition technology ostensibly meant for criminal investigations. Here in Canada, privacy authorities found 48 clients had used the technology. They include police from Vancouver to Toronto and Halifax, plus the RCMP. Um, in the U.S., there are a lot of conversations going on about um, how these technologies are used on Americans as well. But when you're talking about borders, again, with a space of reduced privacy expectation, there's just not a lot of regulation around that. Um, you essentially have to go along with these policies and procedures. Um, and there's there are very few ways to really meaningfully opt out or even know when you are interacting with these technologies. What could be done if a government was to take a shot at, at adapting to how quickly uh, the tech can escalate? Is there, is there a way to both protect people's privacy and still gain the real benefits of some of that stuff? You know, it, it doesn't actually sound all that unattractive to never have to remember my passport again. It's just I'm not willing to give up my privacy in order to do it. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a conversation that we should be having, so I'm really glad that you want to talk about it. Basically, I think people should just have a choice whether or not to opt into these things. I'm not necessarily saying that we need regulation. I'm just saying that all of this is being adopted without our direct consent, um, and really we're not getting a chance to participate in saying whether we want this or not. And you know, knowing how quickly the iris was rolled out, knowing how quickly other technologies have been rolled out, we really need to stop for a moment and pause and think about, you know, what do we really want to do when we're traveling? Like, do we really want to all of a sudden um, have our faces stored in a template uh, by DHS, <laughs> knowing that they have had data breaches in the past, um, knowing that that template would be shared with commercial airlines and not knowing how long those things are, sh are stored for. I don't know that we're even contemplating that or thinking about what that means for us. Well, I mean, the internet uh, has proven that we're certainly willing to give up uh, a bunch of our privacy for convenience and it just fascinates me how far we will extend that and whether we will, in fact, extend it to our own bodies and eyes. Yeah, I mean, the way I think about it is um, backing up for a second, like thinking about ways that we have control over our data. Um, it can feel so often like we have totally lost control of how much data we share on a day-to-day -day basis. And especially when you're in a situation where you're crossing a border and 
you don't know. Like if you if you say I don't want to share this data, um, you don't know whether you're going to be flagged for secondary screening. You don't know if you have to share that data. It's really hard to opt out and it's really hard to navigate those situations. Well, what happens next when you talk to people who work with this tech or, you know, people who advocate for a user privacy? You know, how far do they say we are away from a kind of tipping point where it sort of becomes expected that you will share your face and you will share your eyes um, and, you know, you have to really work not to do it because you've kind of alluded to that coming a couple of times in this conversation. Yeah, I think that with... um with borders in particular, we're already past the tipping point. Um, I think, you know, we've already had our faces recognized and templates stored. And, you know, there have been lots of situations where uh, facial recognition has flagged people as criminals where, um, where they're not. They're people of color who are being wrongly identified by an algorithm. I think we're way past the tipping point. And it's spaces like those that really show us how far we've gone already. Um, And I don't know, (laughs) I don't know how possible it is to roll it back, to be honest with you. That is a incredibly cheerful note to end on. Thank you, Hillary. (laughs) Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Hillary Beaumont, an investigative journalist based in Toronto. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. As you probably know by now, you can take a survey while you're there to tell us what you think, to tell us if you liked this episode or other episodes or hated them, anything you think about this show. We want to hear it. And a few of you will get a free branded tote bag out of the deal. You can also talk to us at TheBigStoryFPN on Twitter. You can email us, The Big Story Podcast, that is all one word and all lowercase, at rci.rogers.com. And find us in any of your favorite podcast players in Apple or Google or Stitcher or Spotify. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.